Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we are joined by a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and co-chair of Foley's Healthcare Practice Group. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please also visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. We are excited to announce a new special series, TLDR, which for anyone who doesn't know, stands for Too Long, Didn't Read. Our TLDR is focused on the digital health industry and the lawyers operating inside the companies innovating in the space, their work, the industry, and their experiences. In this episode of TLDR, my colleague Evan Hellman is joined by Michelle McGovern, General Counsel of Verona Health, to discuss issues associated with the current legal environment for telemedicine companies and the everyday hustle and bustle of being a general counsel. Take it away, Evan. Thanks, Judy. Hi, everyone. Uh, Evan Hellman here, Senior Counsel at Fulton Lardner in our New York offices, and I'm joined today for the inaugural episode of TLDR, a new podcast from the digital health team here at Foley. I'm here with Michelle McGovern, who is general counsel at Verona Health uh, and a a former colleague of mine and and good friend. Uh, And we're here to talk about just kind of general musings in the state of the digital health tech world, uh, telemedicine, and kind of what the experience has been of being a general counsel in that environment, uh, where the industry is going, and and, uh, the kind of interesting points that, that we see coming along the way. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. So jumping right in to our conversation, you've kind of run the gamut in terms of your experience in the legal profession. You've been at law firms, uh, big law. You've been at major multinational corporations. You were at Pfizer and and their subsidiary, Greenstone, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yes, I was at Upjohn. Upjohn, excuse me. But, but Greenstone was one of my clients, the, the generics. Uh, and then you've been in the uh, the health tech startup world for a number of years now, and you currently are general counsel at Verona Health, which is a late stage company uh, as well. Uh, and so my first question for you is, you know, what do you, you know, having had all your experiences and now being in the general counsel role, what do you find most gratifying about that role? What I love about the general counsel role is at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops with you. So, you know, that I guess the downside is the buck stops with you, <laughs> but you get to own every single one of your decisions. And it's really gratifying to be able to make that market assessment, take a look at what's going on around you, and then advise your executives yourself. Um, I think that's what you're leading up to. You know, when you're building your career, you look at each step as you know, I'm, I'm learning something that I'm going to give to someone else later. And when you're in the GC seat, you really get to do that in real time. It's, it's really fun. Have any of your experiences kind of prepared you for that as you got And I, mean, I know you've been at it for a while now, so this isn't like a, a first rodeo for you. But along the way, in your various iterations of, of the legal profession, was there a formative experience that, you know, you said, OK, I know I can do this now? I think it's a great question, actually. Um, I would say that I was at Redesign Health, which is a startup incubator during the COVID pandemic. So at the time, there were roughly 12 operating companies. I was a deputy general counsel at Redesign. You know, we were working in real time how to address the pandemic, how to figure out how to deal with your workforces. And being able to work with so many different companies with 
you know, literally you don't have the information that you need to make an informed decision because the entire world doesn't have that much information. And you really learn to develop your judgment, trust yourself, and to sort of synthesize all of the things that you've been working on your entire career. Being able to, to lead companies through that time in such a high stress environment, you know, globally, really made me feel comfortable that I would be able to do that anywhere and for anyone. I know that the teams here and everywhere and in my experience in-house before coming back to private practice, you know, weathering the pandemic and COVID-19 and basically the sea changes that we saw um, in the healthcare industry, particularly in digital health, both you know, created a number of years where uh, just the work environment and and kind of the regulatory environment was something that I don't think we'll probably ever see again in our lifetimes. I hope not. I hope not. Right? I hope not. Um, so so there was certainly that, but I do think that it was also very much, you know, as your to your point, like a trial by fire in in the most explicit way. In that you know, if you can kind of handle your your clients and you know the advice you're giving through that experience, there's pretty much nothing else you can't do. So I certainly ag agree with that. I mean, on that note, given coming off of, we are ending the public health emergency as well. In terms of challenges that you come across, functioning as a general counsel, as a top legal executive, is there anything that sticks out in your mind in, in terms of, we'll frame it this way, if someone else came to you and said, I want to be a general counsel, what's the one piece of advice that you would give, give to them if they're they're looking to that role? You know, I think that's a great question. You know, the thing about being a general counsel is you have to make sure that when somebody comes to you, you have to treat their problem as if it is the COVID-19 emergency for them. And I think that, you know, being a good GC is that, you know, you're constantly in the back of your mind thinking about all the other confidential things that not every single person who comes to you knows about, but that when they come, you know, when, when I get a question from somebody, whether it's the most junior person on our clinical trials team or, you know, my, you know, CHRO who, who works on healthcare or works on human resources, their problems are all this, the same when they, you know, when I respond, it's with the same level of seriousness, thoughtfulness. It, it, I take into account all of the externalities, no matter how big or small it actually is, but it's your job as GC to make sure that people feel that they are being supported at every level and really to, to kind of meet them where they are. So the public health emergency is ending. Um, May 11th, yeah, right? May 11th, life is kind of getting back to, to normal. But what's really interesting is I think if we look back pre-pandemic and in the digital health mm -hmm. space, you know, the environment on fundraising was very robust um, and there were lots of companies coming out. I think what's also really interesting there in the digital health space is that the pandemic has also, in, in my view, certainly made the case for telemedicine and digital health companies yeah. to say, you know, we can provide really good services that are appropriate and medically necessary and really are helping people. And, you know, I would imagine we may see uh, an upswing in, in continued growth mm -hmm. in this industry. Where do you see kind of the future of digital health going? Is it going to be more, you know, direct to consumer? Is it going to be moving into uh, kind of utilizing value-based care and leveraging payer relationships now? What what's your what do you where do you think that this is going to go? Well, I have an answer. I want to hear what you think though, because you're you're seeing this all day long. There is currently a natural evolution mm -hmm. to the industry in that you know a number of years ago it was in its more nascent stages mm -hmm. and you had more direct to consumer activity, more cash-based models. There were models and structures that were kind of just feeling their way forward and saying, is this possible? Is there a viable market here? I think that's 
been pretty much proven. Mm -hmm. And now I think that companies here are beginning to mature in a way that I wouldn't say that institutional providers have always, you know, where they sit in terms of working with payers and different kinds of reimbursement models. But I think that generally uh, we see that the market is is increasingly ex it's expanding in that it's now kind of saying, okay, we haven't dipped our toe into, you know, insurance reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge, you know, a mm -hmm. beneficiary marketplace out there that is untapped right now yeah. by part of the industry. Let's see what we can do with that. So I, I think that there is something of that natural progression that's going to occur. That's that's my thought as the industry continues to evolve. No, I, mean, I think that I think that's right. I think lowering the cost of care in general is going to be a trend because that's what HMOs were right back back in the day. I think value-based care is is not new and effectuating it is what's going to be the that's where we iterate, right? It's it's not a question of how are you getting good care for your money. It's a question of what is the way we are best able to deliver better care for less money? So I've been, as you mentioned, I've been a healthcare lawyer for a very long time. So we've seen trends in preventing hospital readmissions or implementing care coordinators, right? All of the things that I think I was working on when I was a junior lawyer before tech was such a big player in the industry. You see tech enabling in ways that are just almost unprecedented, right? Being able to track and monitor and, and sort of link up different provider groups and networks and, and link them to one individual person. You know, I, I think care coordination is fascinating and its ability to drive down costs. And tech just makes that easier and better. So I do think that we're going to see tech used in ways that will make costs less for individuals. You know, I think that's going to be that where tech really is a game changer. You know, I'm also, you know, I am I'm a massive user of healthcare services. I have three young children for those who are listening. Every time one of my kids is sick, the first thing you do is you set up a video of it. That, you know, somebody recommended a um, an online pediatrician where they send you a scope and they can diagnose an ear infection online, which I think everyone should know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes. Yeah, yes. yeah, I'll send that one around later. But those are things that tech really, there's a, there's a cost containment, but there's a convenience model that I think tech is really bearing out, especially for younger generations. You know, you're, there, there's some people... Sometimes myself included, I'm I'm not, I guess I'm the oldest millennial. I still love to go to a doctor. It's it's part of the experience for me. But there are so many people for whom that is not even their base case. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see um, I think trends are really going to be making the DTC, the direct-to-consumer experience, more seamless, more comfortable, and maybe creating that hybrid model where your provider is someone you get to stay with your whole life, even if you've never met them live. One trend that we are also seeing a little bit more as well is taking that tech, taking that innovation, but having it in some ways return to more established models and having like a click and mortar model where Ooh. you have that. That is not my that's phrase. That's, that's, I did not make that. I did not come up with that. I'm going to pretend that I did that. <laughs> but basically to say that, you know, you might have that first mm -hmm. online initial visit with a provider, mm -hmm. um, maybe even going as, so far as, as having like uh, that peripheral kind of device or something like that, where someone sends you, you know, it, it allows you to scope something at home, mm -hmm. which would be really interesting. But then eventually there's, you know, you do that first tranche of kind of interaction, but then do you then go back into the, the office for an in-person visit for, you know, more, uh, more involved workup that may be occurring, um, but it, it's, you know, to kind of 
enhance the tech that's there, but until, you know, something can be completely virtual and really like, you know, be able to lay hands on, there's always going to be that that kind of need to, to go in and see people. Well, I think what tech allows providers and practitioners to do is really meet people where they are. Um, and I think that that's what's really unique about it, right? Like it, it does bring the level of care that you can kind of intake at the time mm. to you, right? Whether you go from there and establish a face-to-face -face relationship is really up to you. But I think tech provide like lowers the barrier to entry, I think, to healthcare for so many people. And I yep. think that's what's really exciting about working in health tech. You get to be part of that first entry point, right? So I think most people become healthcare, you know, I work in healthcare services. I consider healthcare law, healthcare services. And being part of what brings healthcare to the masses is really important to me. That's why I get out of bed every morning, right? I, I get to help people have a better experience every single day when they get healthcare. And, and for me, being able to bring point of care to your home, that's a huge, huge boon, I'd mm. say. And something that like, I don't think I even dreamed of, right? When I started practicing in 2012, in the Stone Age, <laughs> I started practicing in the Stone Age. I think I had a Blackberry. <laughs> A Blackberry Kids is a tiny little, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I do, I, I think to your point, allowing tech to enable, uh, to meet people more so where they are and to enhance the experiences in terms of, you know, we were, we were actually talking about it earlier today with the overlay of, you know, you're in the healthcare space, one of the most highly regulated mm -hmm. industries out there as the top legal executive you know, individual at your current company or at any other company or just in the space in terms of your kind of what you're seeing in terms of uh, the need to like how you counsel people. Mm -hmm. And when they come up with this moonshot idea mm -hmm. that they really believe in, and they want, what's the conversation like? I, I think that for most general counsels coming back and saying no immediately is like a death knell, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to survive very long if that's your, mm -hmm. if that's your approach. Talk a little bit about if you could, you know, your your style in terms of being solution oriented or how you work through a problem with somebody. Again, take the example of a fairly senior person comes to you with maybe what you would kind of think of as something of a moonshot or, you know, this isn't going to work. How do you talk to them about it? So a lot of times when someone comes to me with a crazy idea or a moonshot idea, I have to remember that I am working every day in a company that dare to think that big. Mm. And you have to understand that, well, the laws that regulate these industries are, you know, they're extraordinarily important, right? I've worked in this space my entire life. It's important to make sure that everybody's privacy is protected. It's important to make sure that we are using government funding to the extent something's Medicare or Medicaid covered, right? We have to make sure that we're being responsible with government funding. But we also have to think about the power of innovation and the possibility that innovation has to bring down cost of care, to bring treatments to people. And um, when somebody comes to you with a moonshot, I think, okay, so the laws that exist maybe didn't exactly consider this hypothetical. Right. How do we apply that anyway? Right. Sure. You can't wait until the law catches up to your business, not if you're in digital health. Right. And you have to be willing to say, not no, because this hasn't been contemplated, but Let's think about how this regulatory environment applies to this fact pattern, even if this fact pattern didn't exist. And I think that that's, I find that very exciting. But I also think that 
you know, and I've been in the digital health industry now for a number of years, people, I think, often have a view of large company lawyers. You know, I was at Pfizer, as you said, for a number of years. You know, Pfizer isn't a company that thinks small either. And I think that there is this sort of false assumption that lawyers at big companies, whether it's healthcare companies or hospitals, health systems or, or pharmaceutical companies are risk averse or slow. Um, you know, Pfizer brought a vaccine to market in a year. Yeah. That's incredible. It's unprecedented, right? And I think that the skill set that you learn in health tech and in digital health really serves you no matter where you are. And it's really not a question of, okay, how does how does you know how do you look at things through a health tech lens? But as lawyers, are we prepared to meet the challenges that our businesses present to us? And are we going to be nimble enough to keep pace, right? Just because we're rooted in law doesn't mean we have to be 20 years back. And I think that um, there is this, you know, HIPAA is not the, the newest, <laughs> it's not the newest regulatory scheme, but it's right. something that we have to continue to reinterpret sure. to new, you know, to and apply it to new fact patterns every single day. It's it's our job to make sure that we're staying current and not that we're saying no because something wasn't contemplated. Mm, yeah. One topic you alluded to earlier, uh, which which I think is important as well, again, in-house, because you know, as you said, like the health tech industry moves incredibly quickly. Um, you know, client demands are quite, you know, the just the pace is is to be reckoned with for sure. But that's also partly what's really exciting. And mm -hmm. there's never a boring day. Um, and questions come fast and furious. You know, you did mention you've got young children, you've got three, three young kids. And what's that experience been like? I mean, I I, I remember when you were uh having your twins. And right. you were you were still you know in house a redesign and you know that was you know you were going from from one to the three very quickly obviously <laughs> and I've I've got two young uh, girls myself and and so you know obviously everyone in any industry any business mm -hmm. it's a constant balancing act but I I think it's also really interesting when you're not just filling a high level executive role as a general counsel but you're also setting. An example for you know younger employees, whether they're in legal or not. When I was had a staff of, of lawyers in my shop, I do remember that most of the lawyers did have kids, and mm -hmm. and it was a it was a really nice environment in that way because we could you know we we all knew we were kind of in the same boat in mm -hmm. some ways. How have you personally dealt with that? And then you know to the extent that you've got young parents out there as well yeah. with meeting the demands of everything because it's it doesn't mean that things slow down. It's yeah. it's everything keeps going. No, so I have a seven-year-old son, Gabriel, and I have twin daughters, Fiona and Violet. They're almost three. So they were actually born in May of 2020. So just for everyone to, to think about that, I was in the middle of really advising a number of baby healthcare companies, right? Early stage, pre-Series A, seed-level healthcare companies. And I was very close to being the mother of three children, you know, two of whom were going to be born in, in May of 2020. So you know, part of what's really great about kids is it gives you purpose and keeps you grounded. And it reminds you that you're working not just for yourself or for the companies that you're advising, but you're you're working for all of these people who are going to benefit from the technologies and the ideas that you're helping to foster as a lawyer. So I do think kids give me, and I hope they give you and other parents a sense of sort of why am I doing this? Otherwise, I would just go you know, I don't know what I would do, but I, I think healthcare to me always feels very pressing when I think about my children. It's really hard, right? Yeah, it's really yeah. hard to be a, a working parent. Um, I, I wish I had 
a, a really great secret. <laughs> you're you're going to solve this right, right now, right? Exactly. Yeah. It would be remiss not to mention my husband. Um, I do think having a partner who is willing to or happy to, maybe that's a better way to say it, share the the burden <laughs> of pickups, the and and incredibly esoteric holidays, which we get off now. So, you know, some of it's just really creative juggling with with helpful people. But I also think that, you know, as you become more senior, it is your job, honestly, to show not just your team, but the people around you that it's okay to be a parent. I, I think it's okay to say, although um, if you saw me, I look very young, but I'm a middle-aged woman. <laughs> and I think that the years that mothers in particular, I can only speak for myself as a mother, but I will expand it a little bit. The years that mothers are parenting young children often are really critical years in your career as well. I am really lucky I had an extraordinary, I still have an extraordinary mentor. We no longer work at the same place, but advisor, my mentor just made sure to pull me up every single day and really help me succeed as a mother at the time of a very young child um, in a new role and taking on massive responsibility. And I think that supporting parents during this time, you know, allowing them to stretch themselves as much as they want, but also giving them space to parent as well. The dividends that pays off in people's later careers is, I think it's hard to calculate. So part of what I try to do every day is make sure that I am allowing the parents on my team to to grow and to learn and to do whatever they want to do and not to hold them back because I think that's what they need, but also to be really supportive when they have a, a daytime commitment that they absolutely cannot cancel. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I think is important as a parent is to remember that children are not the only thing that matter to people. And I also tell members of my team who aren't parents that their yoga class is important, their darts game is important, their pet veterinarian appointment is important. Their parents are important. Their friends are important. So I also think being a parent has sort of expanded my compassion in the workplace. And it's really important for us to kind of back each other up, no matter what our evening commitments are. So yeah. I think that that's sort of the challenge to everybody is, yes, my kids cannot walk themselves home from daycare, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that I should always get the priority in the evening. Mm -hmm. And that if somebody else has an evening commitment, they should have that honored as well. Even if that's not about a, a kid, <laughs> again, I've been lucky in that my executive team, you know, at Piranha and the folks I worked with in kind of my all of my career have been very supportive of my stance on people's private lives. But you know, happy people are are happy employees, and I think that really does create you know a really special workplace alchemy that I'm happy to. But that's part of the culture I want to build as a GC. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's being in the GC role has tremendous amount of benefits and mm -hmm. there are obviously stressors like like many other jobs as well, but but certainly being able to lead uh, a team and a department, but also, you know, you are coming at it as a trusted counselor and mm -hmm. advisor. And so what's interesting and the reason why I probably asked that question about parenting in your, your personal life a little bit <laughs> is, is more because people will look to you for issues that aren't, you didn't expect to walk in the door and deal with them. Like you're not looking at a regulation every day. You're not you know, reading a statute. You mm -hmm. are, a lot of it can be soft questions. And mm -hmm. how do I approach, I, you know, I remember having discussions with other executives on the team to say, how do I approach this conversation with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a more junior staff member? Because you, know, you are seen as 
um, not just a, a legal professional, but a, a, a true counselor in many ways, somebody to confide in and to have that role. So it is taking that holistic approach is important to the job for sure. Well, what was it like for, you were also a parent of young children during the COVID-19 pandemic in a GC role. Like, what, how did you do I, it? I, you know, I, I think that also having a, a like a partner who essentially saved me, basically, mm-hmm. my wife, I mean, it just simply, simply put was, getting comfortable with the impossible task, Mm -hmm. right? And that it was not going to work out the way he wanted it to, and to be okay with that. And I think one thing about, you know, just kind of as I, as I reflect on that experience and going forward on things now, it's, it's just trying to be as hyper focused and present when you need to be in the sense that, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're with your family and your personal life or, you know, at your vet visit or at, you know, your yoga class or, or, you know, with friends, like, being present, being in the moment, mm-hmm. trying to kind of commit to that. And then, you know, when you're sitting in front of, you know, at your desk and you're working and you're doing client matters and you know, you're answering questions, you know, just being as hyper-focused mm-hmm. on that as you possibly can to kind of just make sure you're as efficient and get through everything. And the balance generally will come, mm-hmm. I've I, I found. Um, I, I think part of the danger is when you are, you know, trying to do a little bit of this, trying to do a little mm-hmm. bit of that, and then nothing gets done fully mm-hmm. is the danger zone that's probably what I saw and as I reflected on it. But also I I think it's just generally a function of being okay with like recognizing that there's going to be some give and take on a situation, much like giving advice, right? I mean, in the sense that if you have a a question that gets posed to you by your clients, it's recognizing that A, sometimes there's not a clear, obviously very much not a clear cut answer. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's pretty table stakes on Mm -hmm. on certain issues Um, and getting comfortable with that and trying to advise accordingly. You mentioned that when, you know, laws haven't caught up to certain situations that we're dealing with, but getting comfortable with that, but also just allowing yourself to be flexible and and kind of making the, the logical analysis and, and being confident in that. I think one thing that can be really not harmful, but doesn't help move the ball forward with mm-hmm. lots of stakeholders is when you don't feel confident in what mm-hmm. you're doing, right? And so there's always potentially a ability to revisit or to kind of do some further analysis. But generally, like the analysis is logical, it's mm-hmm. measured, and you're confident about it. That definitely impacts how you give advice. As you were saying this, I was thinking, um, I rarely say no. It's mm-hmm. always easy to, say, easy to say no at work because it's the least risky, right? I'm often trying to find the path to a yes for a client and and to help them sort operationally how they're going to get to their goals. And um, I think my husband would say that I also don't say no enough at home. (laughs) So maybe it's not a question of sort of how do I, how do I balance the two, but really what am I bringing from work back home? (laughs) There was a donut this morning that, that was absolutely unauthorized, (laughs) 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 but it was leftover from Easter and we're just gonna, we're just gonna roll with it. So um, I do think that, the drawing the boundaries between work and home can be important when you're really comfortable helping advise people and and helping them meet their goals. Sometimes you do need to bring home a little bit more rigor with the nose than than maybe you show up with at work. (laughs) There's not always a path to a donut, but at home, sometimes there's a path to a donut. (laughs) Fair. So yes, no, I I agreed, agreed. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining uh, me on the inaugural episode of TLDR. Uh, It was wonderful to talk with you and see you as always. Uh, And I think really interesting insights on on the GC role, your experience, 
uh, you know, where you think the health tech industry is is going. Again, thank you very much for, for coming and joining me uh, on the episode. Thank you for having me, Evan. And thank you very much to Foley for all of your expert advice and counsel. Thank you. And now back to you, Judy. Thank you, Evan, and a special thank you to Michelle McGovern for a great discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. 